If you would turn to John chapter 8, we're going to spend a little time here next few weeks, I think, Lord willing. John chapter 8. We're going to read today the first 12 verses. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. But then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Well, what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So let me ask you a question. What should we do? What should we think if you hear or see of somebody committing a blatant sin? You see somebody getting drunk, doing drugs, stealing money, committing fornication or adultery. What should your attitude be and how should you deal with it? Or on the other hand, what if you're the one that's caught red handed? What should your response be? Should you get angry? Justify yourself? Do you hide it? Do you confess it? Do you shrug it off? Because <laughs> nobody's perfect. I mean, look, everybody's missing it from the president right on down the line. Sin's rampant. Oh, we're just one of those sinners. Can't help ourselves. John deals with this in these first 12 verses. He answers those questions. And here Jesus encounters a woman. And through this experience, we learn a lot about our Lord, don't we? And we also learn a lot about man. We learn a lot about human nature. John 2 says an interesting thing at the end of John chapter 2 before he meets Nicodemus. And it says this, that many believed on his name. They were all impressed with his signs. But it says this, it says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. And that's telling us Jesus knew all men and what is in all men. So in other words, he knows what makes people tick. When he would encounter people, what that tells us is Jesus would know how to deal with them. And trust me, Jesus knows you. He doesn't need anybody to tell him about you. Because he is light and his light you can't hide under his light. You can try to run away from it, but you really can't get away from it. He knows how to deal with all of us, doesn't he? He knows how to deal with every single one of you and me. So he knows what we need for encouragement. He also knows what we need for correction. And John records, it's interesting, you think about the Gospel of John, he records Jesus' encounters with a lot of individuals. When John chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus. This is right before he says he knows what is in man. Nicodemus comes saying, you know, I need an understanding about you doing these miracles and all of these. He says, no, what you need to understand, Mr. Nicodemus, you know all about the law, but you really don't understand anything yet because you don't understand the new birth. And that is your greatest need. And he explains that to him. In John 4, we talked about this. He meets the woman at the well and it says he knows all men. He knows of her thirst. And he knows how to draw that thirst out of it to where then she's willing to take his offer of living water. He knows people. He knows their needs, knows how to meet them. In John 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda. What does he tell that guy? That guy's like, I just don't have anybody to get me down to the water. He thought that was his greatest need. And Jesus basically tells him, you don't need somebody to take you down at the water. I am all you need. You don't have to wait for the stirring of the water. You don't have to wait for some big 
prophet or healer to come. He's saying, I'm all you need and I'm here. But just to show that he knows what is in man, here's what he tells the man, though. He says, after he's healed him, he said, see, you've been made well. And he adds, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. In other words, he's telling the man, here's what your real need is. God has had mercy on you, but you and I saying he knows all men, he knows us. He says, you and I both know what caused this and you need to stop or else. Now that's what I call firm love. That's what that guy needed to hear, isn't it? In John 9, here's another encounter with an individual. It's just one chapter after another. He meets the blind man. <laughs> and Jesus is like, this guy may be totally blind physically, but what does he say? He's one of my sheep. His eyes may not work, but his ears work spiritually, don't they? Because he says he hears my voice, which he did. He's one of mine and he obeys me. And not only that, I'm going to give him his physical sight. But he's telling the Pharisees, you all say you see things clearly, but you are blind and don't realize it. So he knows men. And he knows how to minister to us both ways, doesn't he? And that's what we have here in John 8. And, you know, we have in, in Luke 15, we have the story of the prodigal son. In John 8, he's meeting the prodigal daughter. And that's the title of the message, the prodigal daughter. And through this encounter, we're once again, we're going to see that Jesus knows what is in man and how to deal with it. The context leading up to John chapter 8 is in John chapter 7. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. During the middle of the feast, it says, he goes up into the temple and begins teaching. And as he does that, all through John 7, if you go back and read it, there's mixed opinions of Jesus. They say, this man here, with what he's doing and what he's teaching and what he's saying, he's got to be the Messiah or the prophet that Moses talked about. Uh, other people are saying, oh, no, no prophet's going to come out of Galilee. We know better than that. And the Pharisees, they're saying, this guy's just a deceiver. You guys are listening to. There's opposition. They're out to destroy him. So the Pharisees in John 7, they sent officers, were sent to arrest him. They want to put him to death. The officers, though, return empty-handed. Well, how come you don't have him? We sent you to get him. And they said, no man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees cannot believe it. And they're like, are you also deceived? And they go on to say, this crowd... These people, these common people, they're cursed because they do not know the law. And they actually had that totally backwards, didn't they? So at the end of the day, John chapter 7, everybody goes home for the night. Next day is where we pick up in John chapter 8. It says Jesus comes back to the temple. He's teaching the common people. And they want to hear him so much. It says early in the morning they are gathered around to hear him teach. And in the midst of this, suddenly, you have this peaceful scene. I could just picture there's Jesus teaching. The people are quietly like hungry sheep listening to the shepherd's voice, listening to him teach. And all of a sudden, that peaceful scene is broken into by this group of scribes and Pharisees. And they're dragging this woman right into the midst of what's taking place here. And that's what we have here in verses 3 and 4. The scribes and Pharisees, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... It's, they said to him, teacher, this woman caught in adultery in the very act. They've got her. And that's what we're stepping into. And what I want to bring out today, what I want to talk about is this woman under three headings, this story. And the first heading is going to be the accusation. That's verses three to six. And the second heading is going to be the answer. That's verses seven to nine. And the last heading is going to be amazing grace verses nine to twelve. So I want to look first at the accusation. And in essence, what we have here, Jesus is sitting teaching. They bring this woman in. In essence, what we have evolving here is a court scene. Jesus is sitting as the judge. The woman is the defendant. And the Pharisees are what? They are the prosecuting, or I would say persecuting attorneys, aren't they? And here they fit the role I don't mean to malign all attorneys. I'm sure there are honest, just Christian attorneys. But we know the stereotypes that attorneys have, and, and I would say for good reason in a lot of cases. And these guys fit that because they just got through in chapter 7 calling Jesus a deceiver. And here they're coming to him feigning respect, 
calling him master or teacher. They're acting like they want to know what is the right thing to do. That's how they were approaching him. But in reality, what are they doing? They're just trying to set a trap for him, aren't they? And so they present the crime. They present their case in verse 4. Just read it. They said to him, teacher, this woman caught in, the, in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? What do you say? They're presenting their case caught in the act. And I'm saying here's the one first point we need to make is this is no small crime. And it's not in dispute. They caught her in the act. They say it twice. So she is guilty without a doubt. In other words, to use an old expression, her hand was caught in the cookie jar. There's no doubt about it. Now, here's the one thing we do need to see is we're not told the circumstances. He doesn't, the Lord doesn't fill us in on the circumstances that led to her adultery because there are a lot of reasons. And I'm not saying any of them are good, but some of them are a little more understandable than others. This could have just been a one-time affair. I mean, she obviously has been set up. You know, she could be somebody that's just living with a man that's not her husband for whatever reason. The guy didn't treat her right. Or she could be, and I've seen this. I actually know this happens. Some women are just weak, and there's men out there that are wolves that are looking for weak women. It talks about them in Second Peter that prey on these weak women and take advantage of them. And that could have been the case, or she could have just been somebody that she's just given herself over to promiscuity. But nowhere in this account, we need to say, first of all, is this sin diminished by Jesus or the woman? She never justifies herself or offers an excuse. And Jesus never downplays her sin. And we need to hear that because God gave a strict command in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. And adultery is serious. In Job 31, Job said this, he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. He says, for that would be wickedness. Yes, Job says, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. Job says the truth there. The Bible nowhere downplays sin and adultery, fornication, homosexuality, any of that. He says, yes, Job says it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, a fire that consumes to destruction. The Bible repeatedly reports that adultery is a foul sin and warns of its consequences. Proverbs 6 says this. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Consequences for those that commit adultery. And the Bible never minimizes that. Proverbs 6 goes on to say, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. And a lot of that, I'll tell you, you can watch an old movie and think, well, this is just an old movie, and there's nothing shown, there's no cuss words in here, but there's a whole lot of adultery taking place. And what happens is that just starts to become the American mindset. It's just like the American way of life. It happens. And, you know, divorce is very high amongst Christians, of all things. And here's the way it happens. This is the subtlety of it all, whether it's young people or old people. It doesn't start off generally where it's reached its final result. It starts off with the look. And then it becomes the smile. And then it becomes the touch, the lingering touch, then the kiss. Then you have problems. That's the way things transpire a lot of times. And that's where we need to be on our guard. So this woman's sin is not a small thing. And it's a sin that's being committed every day and every night. 
in Shelbyville, in Louisville, in all these surrounding counties. And I'm making a point of this for a reason. We don't talk that much about things like this, but we probably need to talk about it more. But listen, taking place all the time, every day, every night. And lives are being destroyed, marriages ending in divorce. Who suffers the most through all of this? Innocent children. They're the ones that suffer. Adultery causes so much heartache in America, as does fornication. We understand fornication is sexual activity of all kinds between unmarried people. And I mean, you have all these venereal diseases, unwanted pregnancies, abortions, and not to say even this the least, emotional problems in young people. You all need to hear this. Everybody wants to be cool, have their boyfriend. One thing leads to another. And what you don't understand with all this boyfriend, girlfriend stuff that it seems to be back in vogue, that I don't think it should be, is what that ends up being is you've got an emotional relationship, to say the least. It's probably going further than that, that you've established with somebody that I know how the game's played. I grew up in grade school, high school, and I wasn't a Christian. That's my woman. It's like she's married to you, and you have that marital responsibility relationship going on without being married. And then the divorce takes place when you're 17 years old, so to speak. You break up and you can't emotionally handle that. You're not designed to handle that young person and it messes with you in a way it shouldn't. I'm back to where we were never taught wrong. We, we don't need to play the dating game. Am I saying boys and girls have to sit on separate couches in a house? I think that's ridiculous. But I don't personally don't think you need to be kissing and I would even say holding hands until you're married. And you're playing with fire. And I've talked to people, they aren't here now, that were here, that got into all that stuff and said, yeah, we got dangerously close to the final stage. And all the stuff that went before that, you weren't doing that with a clean mind. That's a problem. Take it for what it is. I didn't grow up a saint, but I got under the faith message before I got married. Me and my wife, we didn't hold hands or kiss. You can think that's crazy. That's fine. But I'll tell you what, I didn't have to repent for anything that took place between us, and neither did she. Until the day we got married, that's the first time our two lips touched. And I'm thankful I heard the teaching that I heard about it. Take it for what it's worth. That isn't even in my notes. I don't know where all that came from. <laughs> I heard that and I thought, that's some wisdom there because I've been through all that stuff, the girlfriend stuff and the breakup stuff and all the emotional crisis that happens as a result of it. Unmarried people trying to live like married people doesn't work. That's not the way God's designed it. And especially not living together. Here, why was the penalty of this law so severe? Why was it so severe? God wanted to deter this sin for the good of his people. Turn back, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus 20. And actually, I want to begin in verse 6, which doesn't directly deal with adultery. We'll get down to that. But I know that this is another thing I've had to deal with here lately is you assume people know that you should not be involved in occult movies, books, anything like that, especially like Harry Potter, anything to do with demonic witchcraft or whatever. But yet in our groups, it's happening again. Now, why should that be? We should know better than that. You open up the door, spirits come in, and then you've got problems and it can manifest in a lot of different ways. Look at here in verse six, the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits. Don't they have a show? It's a guy, a psychic guy called The Mentalist. I've never watched the show. I've heard about it. I know people that have attended here have watched it. To me, that's just not too smart. Why would you watch things that have anything to do with mediums, spirits, mind control, anything demonic at all? Why would you have anything to do with that? We should know better than that. You're violating scripture and you are literally, the devil can't just come in. But if you're going to open the door by that, guess what? You've given him access and God can't protect you from that. It says in verse six, the person who turns to mediums, familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them. God says, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Now, that's serious. He says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sets you apart, sanctifies you. And that's a good thing. Verse 9, for everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He's cursed his father or his mother 
and it says, His blood shall be upon him. Selah. Verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They've committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. And here, if this isn't as clear as it needs to be, I don't know how it could be any clearer unless someone's trying to twist words and say is doesn't mean is. But in verse 13, he says, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an, ab and what does that word say? An abomination. Does that mean it's like, okay, something to be laughed at, something that's so cute on all this stuff we're seeing on TV because they're nice and they're funny? I've heard that. It's still an abomination. Does that mean we should hate? We're going to be talking about that. Doesn't mean we hate people that are homosexual, does it? But it doesn't mean we act like what they do is okay in the eyes of the Lord. Because it says they've committed an abomination and it says they shall surely be put to death and their blood shall be upon them. But we're focusing in on there. He's saying when two people commit adultery, both of them shall be put to death, doesn't it? You don't have to turn to it, but over in Deuteronomy 22, it says this, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. He goes on to say, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, you shall stone them to death with stones, which is where the Pharisees are getting what they're saying about. So it may be this woman here was a betrothed woman that would fulfill the scripture. Who knows? I don't know. They could have been twisting scriptures together for all it is. If you go back to John 8, so we're saying it's a great sin. It is a great sin. Because the Lord does say in 1 Corinthians 6, don't be deceived, neither drunkards, nor idolaters, nor fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards. Don't be deceived. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you could formerly be that, can you? Because he says, such were some of you. Anyone that practices those things, you will never see in the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't let this society deceive you, whatever they say. But I'm saying there is a greater sin we're seeing here, a greater sin taking place because the Pharisees are trying to give the appearance of wanting to uphold the law for the glory of God, and they only have one motive. So I'll put a big explanation point there on how serious adultery and fornication is, okay? But we're moving on from that. What the Pharisees are doing here, to me, is even more serious. You know, look what it says. They're doing this to the Lord. Verse 6, And this they said, they're acting like they're all concerned about the law and God's righteousness and glory. It says, But this they said, testing him, Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Their only motive is to set a trap for Jesus, and they will crush anyone that is in the way, in the process. That's the glaring sin. What's the glaring part of this that just shows their hypocrisy, though, in this whole account, based on what we just read, that they're not even the least bit concerned about the law? That's what they're acting like? What's the glaring inconsistency here? Where's the man? It says this woman was caught in adultery. That means they had to see it happen. How does that take place? They had to set this up more than likely. But it says they caught her in the very act. Well, as the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. So how was the woman caught and somehow the man just gets away? Why is he not drugged there too? There's something fishy about this whole thing. He probably was involved with them setting this whole thing up to get this woman. So they just have her. That's all they care. They just need her there as the bait for the trap. That's all she is. They could care less about her. Well rehearsed plot to set him up. And that is very wicked. They needle the Lord. They needle him. Look in verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, and they're saying, but what do you say? 
What do you say? They're needling him. And they put Jesus on what's called the horns of a dilemma. And what that means is he's apparently, in their eyes, he's only got two choices of the way he can answer this. And either choice he makes to answer this question is going to get him in hot water. Because if he says to stone her, yeah, I agree with that. I think you should stone her. They're going to be, well, we thought you were the friend of sinners. You've been hanging around them awful lot. Where is your compassion? And then they'd be like, we're going to let Rome know about this. You're going to be the one in charge of this because they're the only ones allowed to exact the death penalty. And he's going to get hung if he says that. But then if he says, let her go, well, then you're an enemy of Moses and the law and of God. Because you're not willing to uphold his law. And they're going to be like, well, he obviously doesn't take sin seriously and he loves the wicked. That's what they would say about him. So they're like, we don't care which of those two answers he gives. We'll have him. That's the way they're looking at it there. They're convinced they've got him in a situation that he can't win, and they've sprung the trap. So who has got the greater sin in this case of what we're looking at here? The woman caught in the act of adultery or these hypocrites that have no compassion either for the woman or Jesus? Zero concern for the welfare of either one. All they want to do is destroy both of them. We can apply this to ourselves, can't we? So maybe we're not dragging people that we catch in an act, but I'm telling you, we need to constantly question our motives for why are we talking publicly or privately about the faults and sins of others. We have to ask ourselves, is our purpose restoration? Sometimes there's other reasons. You just need to deal with something. But is it that, or are we simply engaging in self-righteous exaltation, which is what these guys are doing here? Because what had happened, the Pharisee and the publican, when they're praying in the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers is brought up, or even as this tax collector. It's just so all of us have fallen into that trap, haven't we? And having that attitude, let's just be honest about it. And that brings us to the second heading here. So the first is the accusation, and the second heading is the answer, which is the second part of verse 6 to the first part of chapter 9. And so what do we have there in verse 6, the end of that? It says, Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his finger as though he heard not. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you... Let him throw a stone at her first. What's his response to this accusation of bringing? He just simply bends down, lowers his head, and writes on the ground. Acts like he hasn't heard a word of what they've said. And that really ticks them off. And that's why we have what we have in verse 7. It says, so they continued asking him. Because that continued asking means they are being persistent. And I would use the word badgering. It's ticking them off that he's just ignoring them and writing on the ground. And they're badgering him. I can hear, come on, Jesus. What do you say? You're a teacher of the law. What should we do? You're always acting like you're so sure of yourself. You speak with authority. You know, then what is it that we're supposed to do? What's your answer? And he just ignores them, doesn't he? And just keeps writing on the ground. Here's what I would say looking at that. They are pushing the wrong person aren't they? They're messing with the wrong person. <laughs> they should have had the good sense to move on because we know this much. Jesus would have known Proverbs, wouldn't he? And he knows they're out to hang him. And I'm thinking, he's writing on that ground. I don't know if he knew what to say yet or not. But I'm thinking, he's not going to answer them until the Holy Spirit gives him something to say. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous studies ponders, meditates, considers how to answer. I'll tell you this from experience for myself just this week. It's always better to wait than to be real quick with an answer. It's always better to wait and slow down and give God time to get your mind straightened around and know the right thing to say so you don't jump in there and get ahead of the situation. You know what I'm saying? You just learn that from experience. But all of a sudden, though, he stops writing, doesn't he? And look at verse 7. What does it say there? It says, he raised himself up. 
Here they are badgering them, probably right on top of him. And then here the Lord just stands up and looks them right in the eye. Quits right and looks them right in the eye. I mean, could you imagine in their shoes, you're sitting there badgering the Lord. And all of a sudden he's kneeling down in front of you and he just stands up and he is looking you straight in the eye. Giving you that piercing look. I'm sure it was a piercing look. And I'm sure he stood there for them. That had to seem like an eternity just looking at them. And all of this just slowly died to nothing. And it's just silence. Because that look would have said it all, wouldn't it? His silence and his look would have said more than any words could have said. And then he just gives them a plain answer. It's eight words in the Greek. Eight words. And only God in his wisdom can say this much in eight words. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. That's his answer. And I would have never dreamed up that answer. And they never dreamed that he would have thought of that answer. That's just the wisdom of God that came through there. And here's what we need to see. In that answer that he gave, he didn't excuse or make light of her sin at all, did he? Think about it. He didn't. And he didn't diminish the law of Moses one bit, did he? Doesn't say a thing about that. So through the words he spoke and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, this is what he said to those guys in essence. He said, you do not understand the purpose of the law. And not only that, you men are totally unfit to accuse this woman and to execute the justice of the law. So why is it that the Pharisees were unfit? Is it because they were not sinless? I mean, that's not the criteria. If you had to be sinless to sit as a judge and pronounce sentence, there wouldn't be a judge worthy to sit on any bench. That's not what he's saying here. The point he's making is, and what he says to them, and you can see that by the way they responded is, these men, they're accusing this woman of adultery in the very act, and they were adulterers at heart, if not themselves in practice. Because Jesus said this about them in Matthew 23. He said, outwardly, you guys, you look really clean outwardly. He said, but inside you are full of greed and you're full of self-indulgence. And he went on to say, you outwardly appear righteous to men. He said, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So remember, we said at the very beginning of all this that Jesus knew men and he knew what was in man. And that's for good and for bad. He knew these guys. And through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he's doing what here? He is laying open their hearts before everybody and including themselves. And that's what the Word of God will do, won't it? For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that's what's going on here. Look what it says in verse 9. Look what it says in verse 9. Then those who heard it, heard his words being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one. So the Holy Spirit is awakening, convicting their consciences, and they become fully aware at this point. They probably had a hardened heart, but it's unhardened at this point. They become fully aware of what they had done, thought, and desired that was lustful and adulterous. And I guarantee you there was a lot of that there. And they couldn't get away from their conscience because you can't. You know, you go out on the streets witnessing, I'm telling you, people criticize Ray Comfort, but if you've got an anointing on you and you use the law, that law is written on their hearts, it's on their conscience. And I'm saying they can tell you any excuse they want, how good they are, whatever. But when you bring the law to bear on their conscience, the argument stops. It really does. I've never had anybody argue with me at that point. Because it's, it's hardwired into every human being. It's your ally. And it was Jesus' ally here. 
Because those guys, they can't get away from their conscience. I told you that time that guy that was a Nazi war criminal got all the way down to South America, lived for years. He thought he was happy, had a family, all that other. And this little Jewish guy caught up with him and brought back all of those things he did and it awakened his conscience. And this man just, he seemed like such a nice, soft-mannered man to all the people who lived there. This dude just exploded. Because his conscience was awakened. And that's what's happening here with these Pharisees. And that's why they hated Jesus. Hated him to the point we're going to kill this guy. I read this little illustration I thought fits here. I thought was pretty good. It said his mom's helping her son with his spelling assignment. And they come to the words conscious and conscience. And she asked him if he knew the difference between the two. And he said, sure, mom. Conscious is when you're aware of something, but conscience is when you wish you weren't. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Because that's what we have here. These Pharisees are like, why do they go out one by one? Because Jesus is right in front of them and they know his guy reads our mail. And we can't handle this. And we've got to get away from him and this light that he is shining on our hearts. And they foolishly didn't realize they were as condemned as this woman they're accusing and are in dire need of God's grace, love, and forgiveness. But they knew it now, didn't they? But look, this is John 3, 16 and following. Just turn back a few chapters, if you would. Turn to John 3. We know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And look what it says in verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what these guys are wanting to do to this woman. And that's not his purpose. But that the world through him, what, might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. And look what it says in verse 19. This is the condemnation. This is why anyone that goes to hell will, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practice evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It says there, he that practices evil hates the light, does not come to the light, wants to get away from the light. And that's why we have these guys here filing out one by one until none of them are left. They're like cockroaches. We've said that before. You turn light on, what happens? The cockroaches, they disappear. They hate the light. And these Pharisees are cockroaches. The little slimy creatures that when the light comes on in the basement, they are slithering away. That's what they're doing here. They're, they're getting out of here. And that's why they're unfit to carry out the justice of the law. And the second reason they're unfit is because they totally misunderstand the purpose of the law. And Jesus is showing here, this is how you guys misuse the law. Because God's righteousness and justice sit on a foundation of grace, a gracious spirit. So listen, when mercy and grace are missing, then righteousness and justice become the heartless hypocritical and harsh dealings of the Pharisees. You say that again? When mercy and grace are missing, then righteousness and justice become the heartless and hypocritical, harsh dealings of the Pharisees. They criticized Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he told them this. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick but go and learn what this means. And he's going to quote from them out of the Old Testament law that they knew. But he's like, you all need to understand. You really don't understand the law or its purpose. Because he says, go and learn what this means. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we talked about this in James 2. James 2 says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgments. So he's confronting these guys with what the law itself says about 
witnessing and stoning. Deuteronomy 17 says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And it says this, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So he's asking these Pharisees, you want no mercy to be shown this woman. And that's what they're saying. So in light, he's telling them, in light of your past and present life, are you willing to be the executioners? In light of what you've done in your past and present, what will you do? He's basically telling them when you face the judgment seat of Christ. And that's when they leave. That's a specific application. If you would just turn to this too, Matthew 7. That's what we're talking about here. People love to quote this in the world. Judge not lest you be judged. But there is a point here. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 1, first five verses. And it says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it'll be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So let me ask you, what kind of eye surgeon would you want to go to? Let's say you got a little piece of metal shaving in your eye from working on something in the yard or your lawnmower or whatever. You know, eyes are extremely sensitive, aren't they? I mean, probably the most sensitive thing in your body. And you're there waiting, and in walks the eye surgeon. He's going to work on your eye. And he's drunk, and he's cursing you because you got him up early in the morning. He's got a patch on one eye. And because he's drunk, he can barely keep the other eye open. And he staggers to the table with his scalpel over top of your eye. And what would you do? You'd run. I mean, that's what I'd do. I'd run. Because what kind of eye surgeon do you want to have? You want to have one that is compassionate, with a clear mind, a steady hand, and one that's calm and cool and has clear eyes to see, not a patch. And one that it can't keep open because he's drunk. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the kind of person we want to have work on us, and that's the way we should want to work on others, isn't it? <laughs> so we see problems with other people. How should we deal with them? It's Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Now, I would say you're not seeing much of that here with the Pharisees, are you? Not much at all. So if you go back, that brings us to the final heading, the third heading in John chapter 8. They all begin with A. We have the accusation, we have the answer, and the third heading is we have amazing grace. It says here, Jesus was left alone after they all left. And the woman standing in the midst, verse 9. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Here, she's standing alone at this point, the end of this story, with the very one who had given the law. And she makes no excuses. She didn't run from the light, did she? Like the others, she could have. Who was there to hold her? She didn't run away. She was guilty, and she knew it. Whereas the Pharisees, they wanted to use the law to destroy the woman. God, though, had used that same law to prepare the woman because the law had done its intended purpose in her life. What did Paul say about the law? What does the law do? Why was the law given? It wasn't given to give life, but the law was given to bring a knowledge of sin. And Paul said himself, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it evil? He says, certainly not. No way. He, on the contrary, Paul said, I would not have known sin 
except through the law. And he uses the example of covetousness. That was the one that convicted him. It dealt with his heart. Because outwardly, he was obeying all the other stuff. But he said, when it said, thou shalt not covet, thou killed me, he said. And I realized I'm a dead man. I need help. And that's what the law does. It brings a knowledge of sin. So he didn't give it as a means of life, but a way of expose our sin for what it is. And when we see that, then we'll flee to Christ, to the hope he's given. Because it says in Galatians, the law is our schoolmaster, isn't it? To bring us to Christ. That's the purpose of the law, not to crush us, not to condemn us. There is, believe it or not, there is grace in the law when it's used properly. And it brought this woman here, used properly, to see her sin and the consequences of it. Because she's seeing, she's realizing she is that close to being stoned, wasn't she? She was that close, inches of being stoned. And what has the law done in her case? It has taught her to fear the judgment of God and it's humbled her. She is publicly humiliated and shamed, isn't she? It's all brought out, that pronouncement of the law is brought on her publicly. Her sin is brought to light and with Jesus it's brought into full light. But when you're in that state, She's not arguing. She's not leaving. She's staying in the light, isn't she? And when you're in that state and you're brought to humility and repentance and that sorrow and that state of mind, that is when the healing balm can be poured in. She's a woman that's broken. Woman, where are thy accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. She's not justifying herself. She's saying, you're the Lord, no one. Here I am, I'm at your mercy. The only words she spoke in those entire 12 verses that we read. And then Jesus says to her the most gracious words that any human will ever hear. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Couldn't hear any greater words than that. And I like what John Piper said about these words, neither do I condemn you. Jesus didn't say this, neither do I condemn you so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. He didn't say that. But he said, I'm reestablishing righteousness in your life. And the Pharisees could have it too, but they ran away. But on the basis of an experience of grace, don't commit adultery anymore, not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and have been rescued by his grace. Saved by grace. How could Jesus utter those words, neither do I condemn you? Could he say that just because he's a nice guy? And yeah, he's been a nice guy since he was a little kid. That's the kind of things he said. Is that why he could say that to her? It's because he was surely going to go and hang on a cross and receive the death sentence that was rightly hers. That is the simple message of the gospel, but we never outgrow it, do we? That's the only reason we sit here and can know we're going to heaven is because he took our place. So imagine you're this woman. Jesus has spoken these words of grace and forgiveness. She believed them. I don't think she probably fully understand them. But then this all takes place here. John 8, this is near the end of his ministry. In a few short months, she lives in Jerusalem and she hears this Jesus is going to be crucified she rushes to the scene. She sees him walking to the streets, his bloody body barely able to walk, can't carry the cross, goes to the place of the skull. She witnesses him being nailed to the cross, hanging there naked and in shame, publicly humiliated. I'm imagining this, but I fully imagine this is probably what happened. And all of a sudden then as she sees that, she sees herself naked, publicly humiliated and shamed. God opens our understanding and she remembers, he spoke those words to me. Neither do I condemn you because she realizes he is condemned in my place. What love? I had to fully hit her at that point. So let me ask you, in light of all of that, would the words go and sin no more then be an excessive burden to this woman? This woman. I read this. Meeting a man who was interested in saving rather than exploiting her and in forgiving rather than condemning her 
must have been a new experience for this woman. Jesus' attitude provided both the motivation and the assurance she needed. Forgiveness demands a clean break with sin. That Jesus refrained from condemning her was a guarantee that he would support her. Forgiveness demands a clean break with sin. That Jesus refrained from condemning her was a guarantee that he would support her. Let me end with this. This man named Philip Bliss, he wrote this hymn shortly before his death. Some of you will know it. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. And a few weeks before he died, he went into the state prison in Jackson, Michigan and sang this song. And there must have been an anointing there. He preached a short message on the man of sorrows and sang this song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it's reported that many convicts were converted. And the song goes like this. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So what's the motivation for a holy life? The fear of God? Oh, I would say yes, definitely. But I think it should mainly be that we have experienced the forgiveness, grace, and love like this woman of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because once she experienced that, then he said to her, go and sin no more. And it wasn't a burden to be born then. It's all in the cross. The forgiveness of our sins and the power to walk in holiness. Amen. I would just say if you're in here today and you know you've been living a life of sin, and you feel ashamed and guilty and you want to be rid of that burden on your back and it's got you bowed down. I'm saying, look up and you'll see like this woman. You know, that was the second time it said Jesus raised himself when he gets ready to talk to her and you look up and you'll see him standing before you. Where are your accusers? If you're wanting forgiveness, here I am. I'm not going to accuse you or condemn you. Go and sin no more. That would be his word to you. And he'll give you the grace to do that. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word. And I ask you, Lord, that you'll help us guard ourselves, Lord, not only from the sin of adultery and fornication, just those sins that just break our fellowship off with you, Father, but also from that heart that would be judgmental and condemning and not wanting the restoration and repentance of those that have committed sin. And we also thank you, Lord, and ask you'll open our eyes to see the love that you've given us on the cross, that we were condemned and guilty and deserve nothing but eternal punishment, but yet you were willing and gracious and took our place. And that's how much you loved us. I ask you'll open our eyes and make that real to us, Lord, and we can gladly walk in your law and serve you, a holy God. And so I thank you that you'll do that for us and being with us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.